Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. in law. I'm Jim Vonderheide. Imagine watching an entire criminal trial, trial for a very serious crime, murder or rape, from beginning to end, and revisiting every decision made by the prosecution, the defense, and the judge. What kind of errors might be made and how are they addressed? What are the safeguards in our system? Suppose everything goes by the book. The jury finds the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Appellate judge after appellate judge upholds the conviction. The defendant brings futile appeals while serving the first decade of his sentence. There's a lot to learn from the exercise. But rewind the tape. Begin to watch the trial again, the same trial, the same conviction and punishment. But watch this time with the certain knowledge that the defendant is innocent. Professor Brandon Garrett of the University of Virginia Law School had this experience 250 times as he pored over copious records and looked for patterns, coming to terms with the stories of people exonerated many years after the fact by DNA technology not available when they were convicted. He tells many of those stories in his new book, Convicting the Innocent, and he identified horrifying patterns of error that cropped up again and again. Today we'll discuss what he learned about criminal law by asking 250 times a simple question, what went wrong? Great. Thanks very much, uh, Brandon, for being with us um, to talk about your book, Convicting the Innocent, um, which is a terrific uh, study of systemic problems using specific cases. So we're excited to get into that. I want to invite you just to introduce yourself and uh, talk about your work uh, before this and sort of what led you to this project. Well, that's a great introduction. I think, you know, one of the real... um, challenges of doing the work that I do is to not only uncover and study specific cases, but then think about uh, what patterns among those cases actually mean. Uh, uh, I'm I'm a law professor at the University of Virginia, uh, and I've taught here uh, for a few years, but before I was a law professor, I was a practicing lawyer in New York City, and long before I thought about writing a book or doing anything like this project. I was a civil rights lawyer working for Barry Shack and Peter Neufeld, who were the founders of the Innocence Project. And uh, their work pioneered the use of DNA testing to free innocent prisoners. I happened to, as a rookie lawyer, represent a few of those people. Uh, one of my first cases, starting out as a lawyer, was a, a case of a man named Eddie Lowry. Uh, he was a 22-year-old soldier in and stationed in Manhattan, Kansas, uh, who was in a minor traffic accident near the house of an elderly woman who had uh, just been raped. And um, I guess because of the coincidence that the detectives sort of found him near the near, near the crime scene, they brought him in and interrogated him over many hours. He'd, he'd been having a bad night. He'd been having a fight and had gone to the river to sort of think about it. Uh, was very tired. 
Uh, and ultimately, after a long interrogation, he confessed falsely, uh, thinking that if he just repeated what the detectives were demanding that he say, he, they, they would let him go. And that's what they told him, just, just cooperate with us, we're here to help you. Uh, that, that's the only way you're going to go home. Uh, he was he was wrong. He was he was arrested once he gave that confession statement, and he, he thought that he could sort of clear it all up later since he was innocent after all. But instead, he was uh, he was uh, there was a hung jury at the first trial. He was convicted by a second jury, and he spent 10 years in prison. DNA testing proved his innocence. And when I was starting out as a lawyer, I, I had to file a civil suit on his behalf that resulted in a years later, a multi-million dollar settlement to compensate him for the years that he lost. And so, you know, talking to people like Eddie Lowry, I wondered, you know, this handful of people that I had, had done work for, these DNA exonerees, well, what were their uh, cases like in a larger context? You know, those cases gave me an appreciation of the tragic consequences of a wrongful conviction, but I was wondering, you know, are those cases isolated accidents? Are they representative of something else? Are there lessons that could be learned from those cases? And so when I when I started teaching habeas corpus, I was particularly interested just in what kinds of claims did these these people bring? Uh, did they claim their innocence after they were convicted? And what did judges do in their cases as a group? Uh, at that point, there had been 200 DNA exonerations. Now there have been more than 260. Uh, but I did a study of the first 200 exonerations initially, just looking at what what judges said during their appeals and post conviction. So I was wondering, you know, people like Eddie Lowry who confessed, did they try to challenge their confessions? Did they try to argue that, look, I confessed falsely? And if so, what did the judges say when they did that? Were the people identified by eyewitnesses? What did they say? Did they try to challenge the eyewitnesses? What kinds of claims did they bring? Uh, and so that, that was my, my first sort of look. And, and I was just interested as a person studying habeas and judges, I was interested in how, how judges assessed innocence in the cases where, in retrospect, we know that these people are innocent. But at the time, the judges didn't know that when they were ruling on these cases before the DNA tests were done. Um, but uh, what I realized after I finished that project was that there, there was a lot that obviously those judges were were, were missing, um, and that part of it may have been that these people weren't always bringing claims about some of the real problems at their trials. Uh, many of them were representing themselves uh, during their habeas proceedings. So I realized that judges really aren't the whole story. We really need to get a better picture of what did these jurors see? And to, to get a sense of that, I need to go back and then look at their original criminal trials. And so once I started doing that work, I started moving more into this much larger, more complicated book project where I was tracking down the trial materials for all these uh, now 250 DNA exonerees or their cases are talked about in, in the book. It's an enormous archive. It's really an incredible amount of work. To clarify, you mentioned the first project was about habeas hearings, and could you uh, just get us up to speed on that? I'm a 1L myself taking criminal law for the first time. Habeas uh, is a proceeding that can come after a conviction, is that right? Something brought from a jail cell? Yeah, so after you're convicted, you can, you're entitled to an, a direct appeal as of right, and uh, you're entitled to a lawyer to represent you during that appeal. But during the appeal, you can typically only bring claims about the evidence introduced at trial. Uh, and it's only later on habeas when judges will typically consider things outside the record, like most typically whether your trial lawyer made egregious mistakes that deprived you of effective assistance of counsel, or whether there was prosecutorial misconduct, like the uh, government hid evidence of your innocence. 
prosecutorial misconduct and uh, defense lawyering were the two most common claims that that these innocent people raised. Uh, in part because it's very hard to directly challenge trial evidence. They would say, look, not that, not that I falsely confessed, but my trial lawyer failed to litigate my confession, failed to get an expert to show that I falsely confessed. It's just much uh, easier in our system to bring up those claims for a lot of reasons that are complicated. Uh, but th these are all cases, by definition, where people were convicted of serious crimes, facing long sentences, and although they were convicted typically in the 1980s, before DNA testing was common at the time of trial, they were still in prison years later when the technology changed and all of a sudden they could do something different. They could ask for a DNA test to try to prove their innocence. And so because these are these serious cases where people were in prison for a long time, they had time to pursue uh, a lot of the more complicated, habeas um, avenues. You know, some prisoners, if they're only, if they plead guilty, certainly, but if they're only spending a couple of years in prison, they may never, may never bother to file a state habeas petition or a federal habeas petition because they, they get released and serve their time before that would, would come up. Uh, these people tend to, to be in prison for a long time. Uh, it took them an average of uh, 15 years to, to get out. Uh, and some of that time was spent pursuing these appeals in habeas. Typically, those proceedings would all run their course after an average of eight or so years, and and then their their uh, proceedings in the courts were done, and they were, they had to get DNA tests. Sometimes it took some time to get the DNA tests, and sometime even after they got the DNA test to convince judges to let them free. And in uh, fact, there's no particular right to actually bring an argument of innocence. Um, it's sort of a nightmarish uh, rule that there are a lot of procedural things you can claim in these sorts of appeals, and I guess there's the habeas maneuver, uh, which I am getting my head around, but to bring evidence of yeah. innocence is not really allowed for. Yeah, all habeas is, it's, a, it's another avenue to raise a constitutional problem with your conviction or your detention. Uh, and so it's the idea is that I'm being held illegally um, under the Constitution. Uh, so it's a, it's a considered a civil writ, um, and the state judges entertain it and federal judges entertain it. But uh, to argue that you didn't do it, you, is that a place even in that? Well, you, you need, right, you need to have a constitutional claim to get relief under habeas. There has to be okay. a claim that they can grant. And so far, the Supreme Court hasn't recognized a constitutional claim to not be in prison, even though you're innocent. Uh, in a case called Herrera versus Collins in 1993, the Supreme Court said, well, let's just assume for the sake of argument that there would be a constitutional problem with executing an innocent person. And actually, a majority of the justices said, yeah, I, I think we can assume that. Uh, Argument, they, no. Right. They, they didn't reach the issue in that case because there seemed to be so much damning evidence of the particular person's guilt, so they didn't reach it there. But they've had opportunities since then to, to reach the issue and say, look, of course, it's a serious constitutional problem to execute the innocent. It's a serious constitutional problem to imprison the innocent. They've had chances to revisit this, and they continue to just assume that such a right might exist for the sake of argument. And so you have this constitutional claim, which is sort of hanging out there, ghost-like. Uh, for the sake of argument, courts consider claims. People bring innocence claims. But the Supreme Court has never articulated whether this claim really exists, and if so, what you have to show to get relief under it. So actually, some of these DNA exonerees who were later shown to be innocent brought claims of innocence. Herrera versus Collins type claims. They were all denied relief for the understandable reason that 
lower courts are afraid to grant relief on a claim that the Supreme Court won't recognize. So uh, we have a really odd regime where courts feel really free to deny relief to people citing to their apparent guilt. And that happened all the time in these exonerated cases. We know they're innocent now, but at the time, courts cited to their overwhelming evidence of, of guilt. Uh, so, you know, they focus on it, on innocence and guilt a lot from, by way of denying relief to people labeling them as guilty. Uh, but if someone actually has new evidence of innocence, it's very hard to raise that under the U.S. Constitution. Now, uh, that's not true so much anymore in the states. In reaction to these cases, almost all of the states have passed new avenues to bring up innocence during state habeas. And one reason may be that the Supreme Court hasn't budged. Uh, and so the pressure really falls on the states, which confront these wrongful convictions in the first instance. And so all states but two now have new avenues to get DNA testing post-conviction. It used to be that you couldn't ask for new evidence of innocence or develop it uh, after short statute limitations expired. And, and they also have avenues for you know getting your conviction reversed if those DNA tests or, or in states other evidence as well uh, convincingly shows your innocence. So that's been a real change. You know, when the Supreme Court first said, look, we're not going to reach this issue of whether there's an innocence claim, one of the reasons they cited was that uh, finality is important in the law. You can't just reopen cases for years and years and years. Uh, over time, evidence becomes less accurate and people's memories fade. Well, DNA doesn't become less accurate over time. People's memories may fade, but the DNA test that we can do now may be much more probative of guilt or innocence in certain cases, at least, than anything that was developed at the trial. And so states no longer have these rules of finality across the board. Almost every single state has relaxed those rules to create a new window and a new avenue for litigating innocence. So that's that's been one of many you know really important changes in the law that's really come about because of these these people, these 250 cases spread around the country. Uh, it may not seem like a large number of cases given the millions in our prisons. Uh, but these are unusual cases, serious cases, and DNA came in from the outside to prove their innocence. Our system has had to respond. And it's sort of a magic um, sample, this data set that you've got um, by virtue of this moment in the history of technology. There's a lot of folks who were convicted um, under uh, science that didn't work or with the, before the science was good enough to exonerate them definitively. And it's a really right. large set that maybe is a one-time shot that there'll be a chance to, to look at definitely innocent people and see how they were convicted anyway. Um, and that really opens up questions about the whole system and how wrongful convictions happen. Well, actually, even just focusing on the science, it was the forensics that really drew me into this book project. So after I did that study, just of the claims that they brought on appeal and post-conviction, uh, I was contacted by the National Academy of the Sciences, which had formed a committee to examine problems with forensics in the U.S. outside of DNA. And there were concerns that the non-DNA methods that forensic scientists use are unreliable or invalid, don't have adequate research to support them, and also larger issues about just how well these crime labs are run, do they have adequate quality control. And so they said, look, you know, one of the many issues that we're interested in is what role wrongful convictions, uh, uh, what role forensics played in wrongful convictions. And I said, look, all I've done is look at the claims these people raised on appeal. I, I can say that some of these exonerees had forensics in their cases, and some of them challenged those forensics on appeal and they lost. But to say something about what role forensics played at their trials, that, that would require going back and getting the original criminal trials. 
And then they sort of said, well, yes, that's what we'd like you to do. That would be very helpful. There you go. Uh, and, I, and I thought, oh, well, that would be a lot of work. Uh, but I, I ended up, uh, I called Peter Neufeld, uh, who I had worked for, and who I uh, figured might have some insight into how one would go about this since Minnesota's project represented a lot of these people. And he said, you know, look, this is really important. Uh, this is a, a long overdue project, sort of an extension of your work. And, and uh, you know, I hope you get those trial transcripts. We'll we'll review them. So we ended up writing a larger article together, and also writing a report to that National Academy of Sciences committee, uh, where you know we made phone calls around the country trying to track down these transcripts. Unfortunately, the Innocence Project also had you know several dozen of these transcripts scanned. Uh, but really, it was, getting trial transcripts is not easy. Uh, often, there is no repository for them. Sort of the court reporter. At the trial, may type up a transcript, and if the lawyers request it, the court reporter will, will give them a copy. But if those lawyers are gone, then the only way to get the transcript is by contacting the court reporter. And if the court reporter still has saved the uh, tapes from that case, you know, maybe they'll, they can generate a new transcript. The court reporter may have passed away. In other places, uh, transcripts are kept archived at courthouses. Sometimes, you know, post-conviction lawyer, post-conviction lawyers still had a copy of a trial still sitting around. Since a lot of these people filed habeas petitions and the like, you know, by contacting those lawyers, I could track them down. And there were some prosecutors' offices. The, the Dallas District Attorney's office was enormously healthy, helpful. There were prosecutors still had a copy of the uh, the trial, and, and they and they helped out. Uh, so it, it was the, the UVA Law Library was enormously helpful, making calls to different court libraries across the country. You know, I found out that there's a reason why there haven't been studies like this of criminal trial transcripts. They're just they're just hard to get, and there's a separate problem where if you're trying to study criminal trials, well, how do you pick which jurisdiction? How do you pick which cases? Uh, in a way that 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 problem was solved here because I I was limiting my work just to these unusual uh, 250 DNA exoneration cases, which you know they they sort of pop up by happenstance around the country. You know they're uh, 30, 30 uh, different jurisdictions, different states, and in the District of Columbia. Uh, but, you know, they're in one place, not another, uh, depending on where innocent people got convicted, but also depending on what jurisdictions happened to save biological evidence from the crime scene so that DNA testing could be done years later. Right. Uh, I was so struck that, by the example of Dallas in, your, in the book, um, because my right. exposure to... Uh, wrongful convictions from, you know, 10 years ago was watching, as I think every citizen should watch, Errol Morris's A Thin Blue Line, the movie where the uh, guy in Dallas was wrongfully convicted of killing a policeman. Uh, I assume you know the movie. I wonder if there's any connection yeah. between um, that incident where a movie ended up getting the guy off of death row and Dallas deciding to keep more records in the wake of that over the next day. No, no, it was it was all accidental. Okay. You know, Dallas Dallas and Houston are both large cities in Texas. They both were known for having long serving aggressive prosecutors, right. district attorneys during during that time period. Uh, but in Harris County the the police had their own crime lab and uh when their warehouse got full they would start destroying the old stuff. And so there haven't been that many DNA exonerations there even though there was sort of a collapse of their crime lab because of scandals involving uh, shoddy treatment and uh, false analysis and the like. Is it Dallas? Houston? That's in Houston. That's Houston. Dallas uh, hasn't had the same problems with their crime lab. They had an independent crime lab. They didn't have the money for their own. And the independent crime lab just happened to have a bigger warehouse space, and so they saved everything. 
Wow. And so you, you have, you know, a few, uh, almost uh, 30 uh, DNA exonerations in Dallas um, and just a handful in Houston. And it's there may not be much difference in, in terms of the quality of criminal justice. It just may be the happenstance that so much DNA evidence was saved in Dallas. Um, it's an amazing detective story, 250 detective stories behind your book, some of the detection done by the uh, defendants themselves, from their cells, a lot done by the Innocence Project, I'm sure, and then a lot done by you and your assistants and getting on top of all this documentation. It must have been Herculean. I had wonderful research assistants that helped do some of the initial coding, you know, identifying uh, the portions of these trial transcripts and sort of organizing them and, and uh, trying to locate some of the important language, but I ended up having to, you know, read it all myself and uh, work, worked through this in several studies over several years. Uh, you mentioned people who found their actual attackers themselves. Uh, I think it's not appreciated enough the degree to which DNA testing not only frees the innocent, but it helps to locate the guilty. I think that's one reason why prosecutors are so much more willing to, to do DNA tests post-conviction these days. Uh, in over 40% of these cases, and 112 of them, the uh, DNA test located the actual perpetrator. Uh, in some of these cases, it wasn't enough when the DNA testing excluded. Prosecutors were still unwilling to release the person, you know, especially in a lot of the false confessions. They say, come on, so the DNA doesn't match him. Uh, I don't understand that, but, but he confessed. And so it wasn't until the new DNA test not only excluded the defendant but showed that some totally unrelated person did it that prosecutors were willing to um, to uh, vacate the conviction. Well, that's, that's the uh, I think we should dwell on maybe for a moment. Uh, should we pause for a second? You got a uh, call? You're all right. Yeah, hopefully you can edit that. No, so yeah, somehow, somehow the New York Times website, which was open on one of my tabs on my computer, started, started talking to you. Started talking to me. I don't know why. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe. Uh, yeah, we will. But, but, oh, so, so what I was going to mention about exonerees who, so uh, in a lot of these cases, the DNA tests identify the actual perpetrator of the crime. Uh, and, and most of the time it was through a cold hit. And so there's a, you know, there's a, a growing DNA data bank in the U.S. and, and jurisdictions collect DNA samples and, and profiles from people who are convicted of felonies and now they've, some are even expanding it just to people who are arrested. And so you had these actual perpetrators out there that committed additional crimes. Their DNA profiles ended up in these data banks. And then later, when they reran the evidence from these old cases, lo and behold, the defendant was innocent, and there's a cold hit with another person in one of these databanks. But some of the cases weren't cold hits, and those are kind of unusual and fascinating. You know, there's an example of a, the case of Roy Brown in New York, who did research, including a FOIA request from his jail cell, and saw original police reports suggesting that someone else might have been involved. Uh, he... Uh, Asks for DNA testing. Uh, it took some time to get it, but, but he got the DNA tests. Um, he, uh, the reason why he made police requests was the problem with getting trial transcripts. A fire had destroyed some court documents at his stepfather's house. And when he makes these uh, police requests, they, 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 the documents seem to identify another man who had been acting strangely at the time of the murder and was upset at the victim. Uh, he asks for DNA. He even writes this guy a letter saying, 
you know, I think DNA is going to show that you did it. That guy ends up committing suicide by stepping in front of an Amtrak train a few days after he gets the letter. Uh, the Innocence Project gets the DNA tests, and lo and behold, it shows that Roy Brown didn't do it, and this other man uh, did. Uh, and uh, what's particularly telling about that case is not just that incredible story, but there's a comment that uh, Roy Brown made saying, uh, junk science sent me to prison, and real science set me free. And so, you know, there's a complicated role that science played in these cases. Those DNA tests, you know, saved Roy Brown. Uh, and, uh, you know, he had, he had spent 15 years in prison. But the reason why he was in, originally convicted uh, had to do with forensics. The central evidence at his trial was non-DNA forensics. And uh, it was based on a uh, analysis of a bite mark on the victim's body. There was an analyst who said, look, those uh, marks came from Roy Brown, and there's a high degree of certainty that they, they in fact, came from Roy Brown. Roy Brown was the biter. Uh, and uh, there were a number of problems with those forensics, and they were typical, not just of Roy Brown's case, but they're typical of the forensics across all of these exoneries cases. So it's, it's a useful example to talk about. Uh, so... It's remarkable the defense teams often don't bring countering experts. I imagine money is a big factor in that. Money but, is a huge factor in it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very hard for the defense to get experts, uh, particularly forensic experts. And some of these forensic techniques are sort of created by law enforcement, and there are just simply aren't very many people who don't work for law enforcement who use these techniques or know anything about them. And so here, uh, in Roy Brown's case, there is a, prosecution expert who said that these bite marks are similar to a reasonable degree of dental certainty, whatever that means, with Roy Brown. And that may have sounded impressive, you know, reasonable degree of dental certainty. Uh, but there was no research then and there still is no research now on how many people share microscopic characteristics in the marks that teeth might leave. There's no research on how you decide whether marks were in fact made by a human versus other sorts of abrasions that you might expect on a on a dead body, including through decay or insects, uh, but it's unclear what a match means, how many things you have to find in common to declare a match, or reasonable degree of certainty of a match, or or what the standard is for reaching that conclusion. Could a thousand other people have made those bite marks? Was Roy Brown the only person who could have made them? Could a million other people have made those marks? We don't know. There are no standards, and there's certainly no research on error rates or the reliability of that technique. And so, you know, when Roy Brown later said, you know, there was junk science that sent me to prison, that was shorthand, but, but it was right. Uh, there were a number of problems with, with the method that the examiner used and, and the conclusions that the examiner reached. Uh, there was another problem, which is Roy Brown uh, had a lot of missing teeth. He had six missing upper teeth, but the bite mark showed impressions of of teeth that looked like they were on the top side of the person's mouth. And the analyst said, well, this was, yes, there were some inconsistencies, but they were explainably so. And he's talked about the dynamic biting situation and, and how, you know, the shifting movements might have explained those inconsistencies away. And you know, what was dynamic and what was malleable was, was in fact, the experts' conclusions uh, being adjusted to try to help the prosecution. And, in fact, there was more. 
but it came to light years later, the prosecution had never disclosed that they first showed those bite marks to the New York State Police. And they looked at those bite marks and said, no, they are absolutely inconsistent with Roy Brown's teeth. Come on, he's missing six teeth. <laughs> it's not so, rocket science. If the teeth are missing, that seems like a pretty clear uh, indication that, that that's not possible. Incredible. Um, and, you know, the bite, mark, yeah. the bite mark analysis is important in that case. There weren't any witnesses to the murder. Obviously, in other cases, there are questions about, you know, well, what role does any one piece of evidence play in the trial? There are forensics and there are also other evidence. But the forensics in his case were really typical in that uh, there's a whole family of techniques that rely on these kinds of subjective comparisons. Now, there may be a lot of detailed information in a bite mark or a fingerprint or in a hair, and there's certainly uh, valuable information, particularly if you see something different like six missing teeth, then you can exclude someone with great certainty. Uh, but, but when you're saying that it actually matches someone or is similar or consistent with them in some way, well, then the question is, well, what does that even mean? If, if there's nothing quantified, if we don't know how many people in the population might also have teeth like that or hair like that or fingerprints like that. And uh, if, if analysts um, reach exaggerated conclusions, you, know, you can see how awful convictions might result if they say, oh, yes, the bite came from that person, the hair came from that person. There's no research to support that. Uh, and and that, that was one reason why the National Academy of Sciences was concerned enough and, and, and wrote their landmark report in 2009. One of their important conclusions is that aside from DNA testing, there is no forensic technique that can consistent, consistently and, and rigorously uh, identify uh, individuals to, to crime scene evidence. You know, there's DNA and then there's everything else. Right. Uh, these also indicated you know, not only these techniques lacking in a research foundation, and not only do analysts say things that are exaggerated on the stand, but obviously they also made mistakes. Right? There were errors. It wasn't just that they phrased their conclusions badly, but Roy Brown really wasn't the guy who made that bite mark. They made mistakes. And so that calls into question just the reliability of this kind of subjective analysis that they're doing. Um, and these, wasn't, these weren't just a few bad Apple analysts. These were dozens and dozens of analysts all around the country, some of them supervisors of crime laboratories. And unfortunately, in most cases, there haven't been audits into those crime laboratories. And so, you know, in my book, I tell story after story of different types of forensic techniques gone wrong in these cases. You know, most troubling to me, really, actually, are not cases like Bite Mark, uh, where I think we can sort of intuitively see that, come on, you know, how much information comes from a Bite Mark where it's just a few of the front teeth that leave the bite. It's very different than a pristine mold that you leave in a dentist's office of your entire teeth. Uh, but a lot of the cases actually involved ABO blood typing. And that was valid. But we know how many people have type A blood or type AB blood and how many people secrete their blood type in their body fluids, right? That was that was a sound technique. And the, and the tests were, you know, done uh, using equipment in the laboratory. Uh, and yet, in case after case after case, you had forensic analysts exaggerating ABO blood typing evidence. Even though the rules were clear, the science was clear, you know, the evidence would most often be totally inconclusive because they didn't observe anything different than the victim's blood type. And yet they would claim, oh, the defendant is part of, you know, 40% of the population, 20%, 5% of the population that could have done this. When that just wasn't true, they just gave the wrong statistics. And so then, from my perspective, that's even more frightening, where you have a sound technique, but yet no one is stepping in to stop analysts when they cross the line and give the wrong statistics at trial. How's the jury supposed to understand this? That evidence seems powerful. Defense lawyers clearly didn't understand what was going on. They didn't have their own experts. And in the, in the few cases where they did raise it, 
judges sort of said, oh, that's, you know, for the jury to, to evaluate. And so, you know, there's a real problem here, really, which I think goes to the, the responsibility of the scientists to present their, their data accurately, but also to judges as gatekeepers to supervise this expert evidence. And those are problems that we have in our, you know, crime labs today. All of those techniques are still in wide use. DNA testing can't be done in most cases. Uh, and so, you know, that, that that's one area where what happens to these uh, innocent people, these unusual people who, who could benefit from DNA testing, suggests something that's a much broader problem because, you know, these forensic analysts didn't know that these guys were innocent. Hopefully in the vast majority of the cases they weren't trying to frame an innocent person. They were doing the same thing they did every time. And uh, But unfortunately the same thing they did every time included use of unreliable techniques, exaggerated conclusions, shaping their testimony to help the prosecution. Uh, I, I find it really terrifying. Right, and you've, you've skirted close a couple times to that um, what in some ways is morally the biggest topic, you know, the prosecutorial misconduct, the forensic analyst misconduct, the question of bad faith um, arose for, in my head as I read quite a lot just to see how very wrong some of these claims are. Um, I wonder how often that struck you as the only explanation of an analyst's testimony or of mistakes so egregious. Um, do you think that there's a, a slippery slope where analysts are careless and that leads to things that favor the prosecution, or do you think there's some bad faith in some cases where people are really, uh, you know, misrepresenting things on purpose? Well, there certainly are examples of cases, quite a few, uh, like in Ori Brown's, where evidence of innocence, the forensic evidence of innocence, was concealed from the defense by the prosecution. Uh, but, but I think there's a, there's a larger problem, which is that these analysts, uh, whether consciously or not, were uh, shaping their conclusions in a way that helped the prosecution. And one reason they, they may do that is, is really just has to do with cognitive bias that we all have in our jobs. Uh, we all try to make uh, facts that we don't understand fit with facts that we do understand. And one protection that isn't in place in these labs is that they, you know, they're not independent from law enforcement. These people work for law enforcement typically. Uh, but even in labs that are financially independent, they get a lot of information about these cases from prosecutors that is totally unrelated to the analysis that they're doing. And so you know, they may need to know this is a murder case and this is a mark that was found on the victim's body. These were hairs found on the victim's hand. That may be important for them to have context in order to analyze the evidence. They don't need to be told, look, there are no eyewitnesses here. Uh, these hairs are all we have. This is crucial. We've got to get this guy. He has a record as long as my arm. He's, he's going to kill again if, if, if we don't get some results here. All right? Uh, I mean, there were even cases where analysts said, look, you know, I think we should do some DNA testing here. Uh, the serology is interesting. It raises some questions. And prosecutors said, no, he confessed. Don't do the tests. And so you had analysts not doing analysis which they thought would shed light on the truth because prosecutors told them not to. They were only doing the tests that were requested and they weren't trying to, to ascertain the truth. There were a remarkable number of cases where uh, claims were made that, oh, you know, the the results don't match the defendant, but they could have just matched the victim's boyfriend or significant other or husband, and yet they didn't do a test to find out what the husband's type was. Right. Well, you know, they they speculated and 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 used that speculation to try to imply that well, these results might not really help the defendant anyway. 
when they could have very easily taken that step to, to find out the truth. Uh, because after all, if, if the test results excluded both the husband and the defendant, then then maybe there's a problem. Maybe there's an unknown person out there who, who is the real culprit. And they, 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 in the case after case among these dishonorees trials, they, they just didn't do it. Um, in your last chapter, so, you sort of call for more accountability on some of these things, um, whether for analysts or maybe even a, uh, maybe not for prosecutors um, who get carried away in, in such a way to, dis, to dismiss things like that and not follow hmm. trails that might disrupt their case and lead to the truth. Well, again, it's hard in retrospect to know what trails might have led to the truth because those trails weren't followed, and years later, those trails run cold. But certainly in some of these cases, there was evidence pointing to the people who DNA testing showed was the culprit, and those trails weren't followed. And so there's certainly just amazing examples of actual perpetrators you know, staring these prosecutors right in the face. And the system doesn't, uh, doesn't punish wrongness very well in terms of the professionals who make mis uh, mistakes that large. Uh, there's nothing in the system that seems to call them to account. No, and part of the problem is that these wrongful convictions take years to come to light. Sure. Many of the, the people responsible may have moved on to other jobs and the like. It's very, very hard to bring a civil rights suit, in part because of a number of Supreme Court rulings that have uh, developed immunity doctrines. Prosecutors are absolutely immune for everything they do that's sort of related to their courtroom work if they are part of the investigation and really just acting like police, then they would still benefit from qualified immunity. Uh, but, the, but you know, it's very, very hard to hold prosecutors accountable. And in a lot of ways, they're the ones with the most power. They're the gatekeepers. They're the ones responsible for making sure that the evidence that the police gather makes its way to the courtroom and makes its way to the defense. And yet, they're almost entirely not accountable. Uh, to be fair, on, on the flip side, the defense lawyers uh, are also not held particularly accountable. It's very hard to, to show that they were unconstitutionally inadequate. Uh, there have been a few lawsuits filed in the wake of these exonerations saying that, look, uh, the government is responsible not because of prosecutorial misconduct, but the government didn't adequately train or fund defense lawyers. They, they let sort of just anyone represent people in these terrible and serious cases without any standards, without any supervision. Uh, you know, it was because of the defense lawyering that this happened. And those suits have tended not to, to go forward. Although, you know, some jurisdictions have done uh, reforms of their public defender systems in response to these cases. And so, you know, it's a, there are problems with lawyering on, on, on both sides of, of the equation. You know, in one chapter of the book, I talk about, you know, these people are innocent. Well, what was the defense case like? You know, did they have evidence of their innocence? What did they present? And you know, we might imagine them taking the stand and eloquently telling the jury, "Look, I'm innocent. This is why. This is what I was doing." It turns out, it's very, very hard to to develop innocence. Um, alibis are hard to prove, and prosecutors just lambasted the alibis when they were presented uh, because they said, "Look, isn't it suspicious that this guy remembers every detail of some unremarkable night from you know eight months ago?" You know, isn't that a little strange and convenient that this guy supposedly has an alibi and remembers what he did at work on some particular day? Who remembers that? Uh, but also, you know, most of these crimes, these are violent crimes, mostly sexual assaults. They typically occurred at night when people who had jobs wouldn't have been at work and had people around other than family members to say what they were doing. And so, you know, no one was, would particularly trust, you know, their family members or loved ones 
when they said, oh, yeah, he was home asleep. Uh, so, you know, but we also don't know what other evidence might have been around. Some of these people uh, uh, complained later that they did have solid alibi evidence, and their defense lawyers never bothered to develop it, never even tried. Uh, so a lot of these people asserted their innocence, but they couldn't do much else. Many of them didn't take the stand because if they take the stand, they run the risk that they can be impeached with any prior convictions. And so that's a real risk that they take. Many of them took the risk, but then the jury heard about other uh, prior crimes that they had. And a lot of these people did have records and did have criminal pasts, and that's why you know police you know suspected them. They sort of went to the usual suspects. Uh, they may have done other crimes in the past, but they didn't do these. Uh, but you know, if they took the stand and protested their innocence, they, they took a real risk. And so all that made it just really difficult to, to try to show innocence, even though they would sort of, many of them, most of them tried to say I'm innocent, but to actually show it to a jury, you know, on average, you know, the defense presented just a fraction of the witnesses that the prosecution presented in these cases. And it was very unusual for the defense to have experts, whereas prosecutors often had one, two, three, four, or five experts, you know, a hair examiner, a blood analyst, fingerprint, you know, uh, a medical examiner, you know, multiple experts all working for law enforcement or the prosecution had at their beck and call uh, to present all sorts of scientific evidence or other expert evidence. The defense didn't have much, and they didn't have much to go on. Uh, another problem, yeah. Well, another problem is that you know, crimes are investigated by the police, and by the time the defendant became, becomes a suspect, you know, some time may have passed, and so you know. It's really, really important that police investigate right and get it right early on because uh, there may not, there isn't a defense lawyer involved at that stage often. Uh, an arrest may happen later. And so there's no opportunity for the defense to participate in that investigation, even if they had all the resources in the world since the, 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 you know, the, the case may already have been processed many months before. You know, a defendant may not come into the picture until after the lineups have, have been conducted and, and the defendant was identified in the photos. Or, you know, there, there may be no lawyer present because the defendant waves Miranda and there's a long interrogation. The arrest only happens after that long interrogation and the person uh, confesses. And, and by then it may be too late to do anything about it. Um, and we should get to that confession issue because that seems like uh, a huge factor. You mentioned it in the Lowry case. Uh, these juries often are one over to the to convict, despite you know all these uh, safeguards that are supposed to be built in to counter the advantages of prosecutorial resources. The prosecution has all the advantages you've been naming, and the defendant has a presumption of not guilt and uh, mm-hmm. the reasonable doubt standard. A lot of times, it seemed in, in the stories that you told that the key factor was the confession, the fact that. In that interrogation room, things happened that then came to the jury and were incredibly persuasive uh, to overcome the the reasonable doubt standard. Well, the confessions didn't happen in most of these exonerated cases, but they did happen in a lot of the murder cases. Uh, So there are different ways that admissions could come into a case. You You could have someone come into court and plead guilty, and in a way they're admitting their guilt. There's a whole big group of people who had allegedly, at least, uh, admitted their guilt to informants or jailhouse informants. Uh, there were some people who said things that sort of made them seem guilty to the police, but they didn't confess. But the group that I was most interested in, and, and you know, the, the, right after the introduction, the first chapter of the book talks about this, were the people who outright confessed and said, I did it, 
They were interrogated, you know, in a custodial setting and in the interrogation room. They gave an entire story of 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 the crime, and so you know, 40 of the first 250 exonerees did that. And those cases raise a really really interesting puzzle. Um, the first is backing off. You know, people have a hard time believing that anyone could falsely confess, right? Um, and uh, especially to a really serious crime, and these are mostly murders. Right. The kind of cases where police really need a confession to solve the crime because with, with these murders, there weren't any eyewitnesses. And uh, at the time, the forensics couldn't tell you much. Uh, actually, in a bunch of the cases, the forensics at the time included DNA. The DNA excluded the person, but they still went for it, saying, look, this guy confessed. Forget about the DNA. Um, and uh, in these incredibly serious cases, some of these people, you know, their confession may have placed them at risk of the death penalty even. Uh, they were still willing to admit their guilt. Uh, and people have a hard time believing that that could happen. And, you know, you had scholars saying, the great, you know, Wigmore said, you know, false confessions must be of the scarcest occurrence. And certainly we can understand how sheriff police use outright torture. If, you know, if someone is physically coerced, they might say anything. Um, but you rarely hear about that kind of physical torture uh, in police stations in the U.S. these days, although you hear about it sometimes. Uh, instead, what police use are uh, psychological techniques, which are maybe psychologically coercive, but they don't use physical force. And they, you know, they use storytelling. And people have this idea that, you know, that that, that was a significant reform. Obviously, it, it's not the third degree. Police are just talking to suspects, and so the idea that they would admit their guilt when they're innocent. You know, people think, you know, you could talk to me for weeks. I would never say I did something awful like that. Uh, but that's not what happened in these cases. You know, the DNA shows that they're innocent. We know that they're innocent. We know that they falsely confessed. What makes it even more interesting is you might think, okay, you know, if if I was really exhausted, if I was confused, if police tricked me into thinking that, look, I can leave the room if I only say I did it, maybe I'd say I did it. Uh, but how helpful would that be? You know, please know that, you know, just saying I did it, uh, maybe that you've admitted your guilt, but you haven't said anything that indicates that you really did do it. Uh, you know, police know that they need to test it. You did it. Well, what did you do? Tell us. And if the person can't actually describe the crime and say what they did, then police know that they should be pretty doubtful because police know that, that the suspects sometimes falsely confess. You know, there are high-profile examples like when the Lindbergh baby was kidnapped and hundreds of people came forward and said, oh, I did it, I did it. They're seeking attention. Uh, but, you know, people who are mentally ill, people who are confused, people who want attention, there are all sorts of reasons why people might even come forward and say that they did something they didn't do. So police know to test someone, and that's part of what the interrogation is for. The interrogation is both uh, where police think someone is guilty, they're trying to overcome their defenses and get them to admit it, but they're all, it's more than just admitting it. They need them to tell a story, to, to provide details that only the killer or, or only the culprit would know so that they can test the person. And so we now know that these people not only said I did it, but when I went back and looked at the trials, all but two of them, uh, said they did it and they provided those telling specific details about how the crime happened. Uh, unusual details, uh, you know, about the, the weapon used, the, the layout of the victim's house. In Larry's case, there are these details about how he, you know, broke open the screen door in the back of the house and the layout and how the knife was used and where the victim was and what the place looked like. Uh, and, you know, police said, look, you know, we keep those details out of the public eye for a reason. We black out those facts. No one knew it except us as the crime scene investigators. 
uh, and, you know, the victim. And so when he told us those details, you know, that, that, that was how we knew he absolutely had to have been the one who raped that elderly woman uh, in the White House on the corner whose screen door was busted in and a knife was found in the kitchen and, you know, helped her throat and all those details. Um, but we now know he's innocent. We couldn't have known any of that stuff for the same reasons the police said at trial. It wasn't public. No one except the police and, and maybe the victim knew all that stuff about the screen door and everything. Uh, and so now we know that those details really must have come from the police and uh, whether they intended to or not. Uh, but it's hard to understand how they could lose track of details that are central to a case, although, you know, during complicated interrogations they might. Uh, those, those facts were either intentionally or negligently fed to the suspect, and that's what made the confessions powerful. That's why judges said this guy didn't just confess, but, but he confessed in detail, using details that only the killer could have known. But, you know, none of these interrogations were recorded in their entirety. Quite a few of them were recorded, but only at the very end, uh, where the police or prosecutors got a short you know, confession statement, uh, which told the whole story. But we never knew how those facts made their way into the story. Now, if there had been a recording of the entire confession, these, these convictions might have never happened. It would have been clear that when these people were asked open-ended questions, they had no idea what the answer was. And only when police told them the facts could they, uh, could they say something about how the crime happened. And, you know, that's the re that's the reason why, yeah, and, and that's and that's the reason why, in response to these cases, uh, 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 folks have pushed just the mandatory recording of entire interrogations. And uh, but the other terrifying thing about it is, uh, like the forensics, like the eyewitness evidence, the confessions seemed really strong at the time of trial. And so you know, it might make us feel better. If we figured, oh, you know, maybe these were flimsy cases against innocent people. It has to be a flimsy case because the people were innocent, right? And, you know, maybe just uh, the prosecutors went forward despite having a flimsy case. They wouldn't normally do that. And somehow the jury just happened to convict and it's a case that's flipped through the cracks. But that can't happen very often because we have a reasonable doubt standard. It's hard to convict someone of a crime. Jurors take their jobs seriously normally. Uh, but no, no, no. You can see how jury, jurors taking their jobs very seriously and prosecutors taking their jobs seriously, and judges too, would all have thought, you know, these are open and shut cases. There's overwhelming evidence of guilt here. The guy didn't just confess, he confessed in detail, right? And so I think that should bother us even more about, you know, our, how secure we can be in the accuracy of criminal judgments where you have cases that seemed really strong and turned out to have been deeply flawed. And it's only because they have these special characteristics where the DNA evidence um, comes into play that we can realize these mistakes. Um, there must be in um, other crimes and other scenarios so many uh, similar cases. Having read sure, you know, 250 I mean, of those transcripts, it must be exhausting morally to watch the mistakes compound and to watch the, the strong cases be built against innocent people and during your research, I mean. Yeah, I mean, just, just to even take the confessions, those mostly happen in murder cases. In most murder cases, there isn't a rape, there is no biological evidence that you can link with the attacker. And so, you know, we just don't know what's going on in, in the other cases where uh, police or prosecutors come in and say this guy confessed in detail. And hopefully most of the time when people confess in detail, it's because they really knew the details they were guilty. Uh, but, you know, if we had better documentation of what actually happens in interrogation rooms, we could be a little more confident that cases will be, are being handled correctly. But yeah, more broadly, it's uh, these are hard trials to read. 
yeah. the, cri the crimes are gruesome. I think, you know, my students and I, when we're reading these trials, you know, we, we all are, you know, both thumbs up for the prosecution, you know, bringing this, this horrible case to, to an end. You can see why the jurors would have convicted with great enthusiasm in a lot of these cases. Uh, they had terrible crimes, uh, evidence that seemed pretty powerful, forensics that seemed powerful, in part because they were overstated. Uh, you know, the other part of the picture here that we haven't talked about is the eyewitness evidence. Uh, which I talk about in in, the, in the, another one of the, the early chapters, um, in part because so many of these cases were rapes where you could later do DNA testing. A lot of these cases, more than 75% uh, had eyewitnesses, and a lot of those were, were the victims themselves. Um, and that evidence was incredibly powerful to the jury, too, because in almost all of the, the cases with eyewitnesses and you know, 190 told cases, the eyewitnesses told the jurors, look, that guy there, he's, he's the one who did it. And I am absolutely confident. I'm sure that is the one who attacked me. You know, I have, a, I have an image in my mind. I have a photo. I'll never forget it. It was so horrible what happened to me. And a lot of these were prolonged encounters where they had a, uh, an opportunity to really see the person, although often at night, you know, under very stressful circumstances. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it seemed really powerful at the time of the trial. Uh, what was disturbing, though, is that you could tell, even just from what the eyewitnesses said at trial, that something had gone wrong before trial and uh, something that the jurors didn't see. Because so many of these eyewitnesses described how, actually, during the earlier lineups or photo arrays that were conducted where they first identified the defendant, they weren't so sure. Uh, they picked out fillers or they uh, said they weren't sure and they couldn't decide. Uh, they admitted that, look, I couldn't even see the face of the person who attacked me. Uh, and they described how police used procedures which have long known to, to be unsound and can generate false confidence. Because that's what they all had. They all had false confidence. By the time of the trial, they were absolutely certain that they were picking out the right person, and we now know that they didn't. Uh, and so the, the trials really, the records could really shed light on what, what went wrong. Where did these uh, false memories come from? And it turns out social science over the last 30 years has documented how confidence can increase, even if police are doing things that aren't blatant. But you can imagine blatant sort of pointing to one of the photos in the photo array saying, that's the guy, he, he has a serious record. Pick number four. Uh, and, and that could have happened in some of these cases. Uh, the, there were some cases where uh, the eyewitnesses actually did describe really blatant police misconduct like that, and the identification still came in. Judges are really reluctant to exclude eyewitness identifications, but in the vast majority of the cases, it was not like that. It was more in the in the vein of police worried that the victim wasn't going to participate and would be scared to come to a lineup, and so to reassure the victim, they'd say, "Look, we arrested someone. Come on in." You know, that's a, that's a big mistake. You, you need to be clear and tell uh, an eyewitness that the suspect may or may not be in the lineup because otherwise, they they will predictably try to find that suspect in the lineup and maybe just select the person who looks most like the attacker out of the out of the choices that they have in front of them. Um, and, or police after a lineup would say, good job, you know, you uh, you picked the guy we arrested. Uh, he has a terrible criminal record. You know, great work. Uh, that, that's the guy you picked in the last lineup. And, uh, but we repeated it just to, uh, to be sure. And those kind of comments predictably create a fall of confidence. And uh, but at the time it wasn't appreciated to the degree to which that could occur, and 
And once again, you know, you have this false confidence created in case after case after case where the eyewitness evidence was central evidence uh, before the jury. You know, the jurors may not have understood all the forensics, but, but this eyewitness testimony was really vivid. Where you have the victim describing this terrible, terrible encounter, and then at the end of that harrowing story, pointing to the defendants, that's absolutely the one. Um, but there's a simple way to avoid a lot of these problems, and that is just to simply have the person doing the lineup be someone who doesn't know who the suspect is. And that, that way, it's impossible for them to give any cues. And if you tell the, the eyewitness, look, this, I'm the detective running this lineup. I have no idea who the suspect is. Uh, then you won't have the problem, which also comes up in studies a lot, where you can have the eyewitness perceiving cues and looking for reassurance and when none were intended. Uh, and uh, and so that's what they call these double blind. You need the person doing the lineup to be blind to who the suspect is and double in the sense that the eyewitness has to know that the administrator doesn't know who the suspect is. It's the simplest thing to do in the world, even for small departments that don't have a lot of extra detectives to go around. All they have to do is put the photos because physical lineups really aren't used very much these days. They tend to be photo arrays. They just have to put them in separate folders and shuffle them. And then the uh, eyewitness can open up the folders, and the detective can't see over the folder and see which photo the person is looking at at any given time. And so all they need is some manila folders to make the lineup double blind. The other important thing is to document how certain they are, because you have a lot of these uh, eyewitnesses describing at trial how they earlier had been uncertain. Uh, but, but by the time of trial, they're absolutely confident. So it's really, really important to document exactly what their certainty is at the time when their memory is, is most reliable, and that's at the time when they first identify someone. And what's terrifying is that, you know, we know about these 250, now 260 and counting cases uh, where DNA testing has proved innocence. But eyewitness identifications generally using the same uh, flawed procedures are used in tens and tens of thousands of cases all across the country. And many police departments still don't even have written procedures at all on how to do a lineup or an eyewitness identification procedure. Just no procedures at all. Police have detailed procedures about all sorts of different things, from use of force to chain of custody and seizure of evidence, searches, uh, and yet no rules at all on, on something as important as eyewitness evidence, which can be crucial in so many uh, criminal cases. But that's starting to change, and, and more states are passing statutes to require that best practices be used, but it's changing really slowly considering how long we've known that this is a serious problem. Right. We like to think that we get better at things like this as a society um, and that the problems um, are smaller than they used to be uh, when you think about To Kill a Mockingbird or other wrongful convictions. Certain things maybe are no longer factors. But your book is uh, named, in a way, in honor of a previous book, 80 years ago, or a similar uh, span, there was a book called Convicting the Innocent that was about the same right. issue. Um, how different are these issues that we now have? How much progress have we made since that book? So Edwin Borchard wrote a book called Convicting the Innocent. Uh, he was a Yale professor. I have a copy of his book in my office from our UVA library, which he signed, and so I may never have to, I may never want to give it back to the library. Uh, and because it's kind of special having that autographed copy uh, sitting here uh, on my shelves. Uh, but he he was the first to say, look, you know, maybe we can locate examples of wrongful convictions and say something about the patterns. Uh, people didn't really believe that wrongful convictions could occur, and it was hard to show that a conviction was false if you didn't have a DNA test. Uh, but even, you know, in 1932, there were cases where it was pretty obvious 
uh, like cases where someone was convicted of a murder, but then the, uh, the supposed murdered person turned up alive. <laughs> there, are a number of, there are a number of cases like that where, you know, more towards colonial times, it was easy to lose track of people. It turns out they had just sort of left town for a while, but everyone thought that they had been murdered. Uh, and absent the body, uh, the evidence would, would tend to have been somewhat weak, but people were convicted anyway, and some of them were sort of, you know, about to be hanged, and then the, uh, the victim walks into town saying what's going on. Uh, and actually, Borchard talks about some of these same problems, like problems with eyewitness identifications, uh, informant testimony, uh, faulty confessions. Uh, in some ways, a lot of things have changed. You know, there are a lot there are these new forensic techniques that are available. There's all this new research on eyewitness memory. Uh, there are a lot of ways that, you know, criminal procedure has been just revolutionized since that time. You know, there are now Brady rights for the defense to get discovery from prosecutors. Uh, it's, it's, uh, there's a right to counsel for defendants. You know, there are certain rules about, you know, if you use an informant, you have to disclose the deal to the defense. If there is a deal, right, there's a whole welter of criminal procedure rights. So, so a lot has changed since then. And yet, uh, the causes of these wrongful convictions look look awfully a lot like what, what he identified way back when, when he wrote about you know his 65 cases and uh, wrote his wonderful book, Convicting the Innocent. Um, and part of it is that I'll... I'll, I'll Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I want to be sure to ask you about Skinner versus Switzer and whether there are new tools in the appeals courts now that there's some hope for uh, more for progress there, that civil rights actions could be more useful than he Oh, no. Yeah, no, 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 that case isn't helping. Okay. Uh, I'll mention it in a minute, but just generally, um, you know, court, federal courts have been reluctant to say as a matter of constitutional law that we should regulate the evidence of criminal trials. The idea is that accuracy and reliability were all subjects for sort of state courts to deal with. And North Carolina uh, has done that. I see that you're optimistic about what North Carolina did with their system. Are you optimistic that more states... Yeah, so, so they sort of said, look, if, if no one else is going to to step in, uh, we, we need to take responsibility for this problem ourselves. And they adopt, they created a, an innocence commission. They adopted double-blind lineups throughout the state. Uh, the first police chief to do it in North Carolina before it became a state law was uh, he was the, the detective who did lineups in Ronald Cotton's case. And the victim, Jennifer Thompson Canino, and Ronald Cotton have written a book together about how she came to identify him. And it wasn't police misconduct again. It was encouragement. It was the police saying, good job. That's the guy you picked out before in the photo array, that kind of thing. And the police officer himself later became police chief. And when Robert Cotton was exonerated, he he said, look, you know, those those lineup procedures were at fault. Uh, it wasn't, you know, I just didn't know then what I know now. And so he was the first to adopt double blind, but now there's a state statute. Uh, and uh, they do innocence-based review of, of criminal cases and uh, have pushed recording of interrogations. Uh, but uh, it seems like your book is part of a process where, uh, or is helping quite a bit potentially in society learning from its mistakes, as he did. If that police officer can say, "Wow, we, that was really a, a botched process, and I'm going to change it." Um, this particular moment with this DNA evidence and all these wrongful convictions seems like a time when uh, stock can be taken and your book can help society correct some of this, the procedural issues here. Yeah, and we can't count on the Supreme Court to take that stock. Back to the case that you mentioned, Skinner versus Switzer. Uh, a little bit before that, uh, the Supreme Court decided in 2009, Osborne uh, versus District Attorney's Office, and there Justice Roberts said, well, you know, DNA 
uh, is useful. It sometimes confirms guilt. It sometimes shows innocence. But human error is obviously inevitable in any you know, system like a criminal justice system. Uh, and I'm, I'm not quoting, I'm paraphrasing, but that attitude towards human error as being inevitable and you know, it shouldn't bother us so much that yeah, DNA error brings errors to light. It's sort of a blasé attitude about about these sorts of miscarriages of justice. And it was carried through when the Supreme Court said, look, there's no freestanding constitutional right to get DNA tests in a civil rights action, even if they could prove your innocence. They instead said there's sort of more of a procedural due process right, which could have some teeth to it depending on how seriously uh, courts take Osborne. And so Skinner, uh, it was a case saying that, yes, federal courts can, ten- can entertain those 1983 actions where people are seeking DNA tests. But the question is, well, do they have a right to the test? And the right is really dependent on uh, the state arbitrarily applying its own post-conviction rules on DNA testing. And, and so uh, if the state has rules that are arbitrary or it applies them in an arbitrary way, maybe you can say, look, um, the state entitles people to DNA testing if it could reasonably show their innocence. It could certainly show mine. Why did they deny me the test? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, but it's not clear how easy it's going to be to win those claims. Um, and it's, so it's certainly not a ringing or direct endorsement of using the federal courts to get access to DNA testing. And fortunately, it just doesn't come up very often anyway. That's why the stakes really wouldn't have been that high if the Supreme Court had more clearly said, come on, of course the Constitution entitles you to evidence of potential innocence. Uh, because prosecutors tend to agree to these tests now since they know that so often those tests can lead them directly to, to a culprit. You know, dozens of these actual perpetrators committed additional crimes during the time that the innocent person was in jail. Uh, but, you know, the other thing that the court isn't doing, though, is taking human error seriously in the sense of revisiting uh, standards for disclosure of exculpatory evidence to the defense or revisiting uh, the, the standards for gatekeeping and, and forensics in criminal cases. Uh, you know, they, the court has never revisited uh, the test for allowing eyewitness identifications, which is a flawed test and it allows highly suggestive identification procedures to be used without any consequence. So it's no surprise that police haven't paid much attention to uh, the way that lineups are constructed when courts are going to let it in anyway. Uh, you know, they, they haven't revisited that since 1977. And so there's there's a real problem with even the few criminal procedure rules that sort of touch on accuracy of central evidence in, in criminal cases. And so that's left it to the states. And and there has been really a, a criminal procedure revolution in the states as more and more states realize that this is, you know, the, our, our problem at the local level now. It's not something that federal courts are going to do anything about. And so more states have required a videotaping of interrogations. You have, you know, over 750 police departments that do it now. Uh, and, and what they all realize is that these kinds of accuracy-based reforms aren't really the kind of thing that uh, it's sort of a fairness protection for defendants, but it might let people off on technicalities if they are guilty. It's sort of a trade-off between protecting the innocent but getting the guilty. What they find is that actually accuracy helps them in both directions. So, for example, videotaping interrogations also helps them convict the guilty because people can falsely claim that, look, my interrogation was coerced and police did terrible things in the interrogation room. But if there's a record of it, they can play the tape for the judge, and it really simplifies suppression hearings and in the same way, if, it, if a lineup is double-blind, it avoids any uh, frivolous allegations that the police officers cued the eyewitness. You know, they can say, look, no one was cueing anyone. This, this officer had no idea who the suspect was even. And so the departments that have adopted these reforms have been incredibly happy with them. 
uh, because it supports the integrity of their work and helps them identify the guilty. Uh, same thing with forensics. You know, we don't know how many cases, except in a few, where we know that the guilty person was in front of these analysts, where, where the uh, misuse of forensics led to an error in the other direction, and guilty people went free. But in some of these cases, you had analysts looking at the hairs or whatever it was, and they excluded people that DNA later showed were the perpetrators. Uh, and so, you know, this this, this like lack of examples, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, this lack of quality control runs in both directions. There are really good law enforcement reasons to try to figure out uh, what these techniques can do, what they can't do, and to try to improve the quality control of laboratories. And in each of your chapters, it seems that you're uh, tracing the ways that with better information, the incentives can actually line up. <laughs> you can get guilty people locked up and not guilty people not locked up, um, and that's encouraging that with the information that you're bringing to light and with the analysis that you've, the copious analysis you've done to sort through and present succinctly and clearly and with storytelling uh, all these examples, uh, use can be made if uh, only by states. Each state can uh, take this information and do something with it. It seems that there's progress on the horizon. So that's terrific. Uh, we've taken a lot of your time. I think we should um, probably wrap up. Um, is there uh, any piece that we have omitted or great um, thought about what the book is going to go on to do. It's out in April, I understand. Yeah, the book comes out officially in April, but it's already available online and on Amazon. Uh, I guess two other things I want to mention about the book. Uh, you know, Hopefully it's not only you know something that people can learn from, but also just really fun to read. It's just really interesting to look back at these criminal trials, and I tell the stories of them and try to explore you know, how these cases went wrong. And so hopefully it's something that people just find interesting. We don't read, you know, excerpts from real trials and see what really happened right. in it criminal cases that often. very readable. I found it terrific that way as a piece of piece after piece of storytelling. Um, it's, it's outstanding. What I also want to mention is that there's sort of two companions to the book. Uh, there's a research website for people really interested in particular cases or cases in their own state. And if people want to see, well, who are the – People who had uh, eyewitnesses uh, and were wrongly convicted in New York. Or if someone wants to see what are the cases involving uh, bite mark testimony around the country, were there any in my state? Or did anyone falsely confess in my state and then was later exonerated by DNA testing? Uh, I have charts sort of walking through all, all of the cases uh, available online uh, off of my website at University of Virginia School of Law. So, you know, those kinds of appendices were way too long to include in the back of the book. Um, I sort of give an overview of how I did the work in, in, in the appendix in the book, but then the, the descriptions of the cases are all available online. There was something else, which is maybe for the people uh, interested in, in a much less technical research-oriented uh, view of this, and that is the, the Innocence Project, uh, in collaboration with me, is going to be putting up online uh, in early April, we don't have a date certain yet, a kind of interactive guide to the book. And I think that'll be a really interesting kind of companion, too, for some of the cases that I talk about in the book, where we're going to have video interviews with the exonerees and uh, some of the trial materials that you can sort of get walked through uh, with images, sort of what happened in some of these cases. And there's a remarkable set of interviews with um, Jennifer Thompson Canino, the woman who misidentified Ronald Cotton 
in North Carolina, and then with the detective, who was, the, as I mentioned, the first in North Carolina to adopt double blind lineups in response. And so I, I think that website is going to be a really, really neat resource. It also describes some sort of you know, places you can go to read more about some of these problems. And uh, so that, that'll be hosted by the Innocence Project on their website in, in just a couple of weeks. Outstanding. Well, it sounds like it's uh, in a position to make important interventions in the conversation um, about this really important issue. And you've got this incredible moment in history. It really is very important work to look at these exonerations, which are 100% certain exonerations, and figure out what went wrong. So I really appreciate the book and appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today about it. Yeah, and again, um, you know, it, it, these are hard cases to look at. And, you know, I say at the end of the book that, you know, we, we can't give these people back the years that they lost. Uh, last year, for the first time, I gave a talk about some of my research at the Innocence Network conference, and there were a lot of these exonerees in, in the audience. And I was worried, you know, here I'm talking about the details of some of these false confessions. Some of the people who falsely confessed are here in front of me, um, and so I sort of apologized for that and said I would try to talk about it sensitively. Uh, afterwards, I heard that actually they, they were grateful to to have that, that talk about some of what happened in their actual cases because it uh, made them feel better to hear that it happened to other people too. Uh, but if there's one thing we can do, uh, since we can't give them back that time, it's it's you know we we can try to learn from what happened, right, and try to uh, take their cases seriously and 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 try to get a sense of whether these patterns can can lead us directly to some solutions. And I think they can. Uh, but even if people disagree with particular solutions, I think it's just really important since these cases are, are a unique opportunity to 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 think about these cases and to study them and to, to, to see what we can learn from them. It's well said. Well, thanks again very much, Professor, um, and uh, appreciate your, your being on to talk about it. Look, look forward to checking out the website as well. My pleasure, and uh, I, yes, I can't wait to uh, listen to the podcast when you're done with it. Terrific.